One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now: michael at lmfm.ie. A very good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. Coming up this morning, we'll be talking to Mairead McGuinness about the latest developments or not on Brexit. Deputy Kathleen Funchen, Sinn Féin spokesperson on education, will discuss the cost of going back to school for parents and the impact of the failure to pay the back-to-school allowance. Seamus Boland will look at the closure of post offices in rural Ireland alongside Deputy Pallet Tobin. We'll have a look at the City Status Group meeting in Drogheda tonight and Father Peter McVerry on the papal visit and the homeless crisis as it continues. To grow. But first this morning we're going to be joined by Mairead McGuinness. Mairead, good morning to you. Good morning. I hope you can hear me clearly. I've just stepped out of a meeting here in Brussels, so apologies if the line. I can indeed. Thank you, Mairead. Mairead, of course, is the Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands North West and is Vice President of the European Parliament. Mairead, this morning we are into the 29th of August. On the 29th of March 2019, Britain will leave the EU or will it? Well, it will, because there is a, a legal imperative, because the British uh, people vote to leave. They then trigger the Article 50 mechanism. And unless and until something happens to change that um, process, then the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union on the day to say there. I think what's less clear, and I, I you know, even here in Brussels uh, this week, where things are getting back in action after the summer recess, what's very less clear is what sort of Brexit we're going to see, whether there will be a deal, and the details of that deal. I mentioned that I just stepped out of a committee, we're an agriculture committee, where Brexit was mentioned several times because we're debating the future funding of the common agriculture policy beyond 2020. And clearly, when the United Kingdom leaves and they will not be contributors to the budget in the way they are today, that will have a consequence for the agriculture budget and will impact indeed on farmers in Louth and Mead and in Ireland generally. So the Brexit impact is quite profound. The level of uncertainty... I'm afraid to say, is still around. In other words, that um, there has been very little progress uh, that you could count and say, well, this is um, reducing certain uncertainty in, in that area. So we do have a proposal from the United Kingdom called the Checkers Deal. Um, we uh, have a withdrawal agreement that's 80% complete, but the crucial area for our region is the border question, and that's not completed. And I don't see signs um, of it moving um, urgently in the way that it needs to do. So we have very little time left. We've said this for months now, but every month that goes by, we've left time. 
And I think, you know, last week when the United Kingdom published papers on the consequences of a no deal, for me that was a wake-up call to the United Kingdom because there would be very severe consequences if they decide to crash out of uh, the European Union without agreement. I'm just going to give you a, a reminder, Mairead, if that's OK, of some of the recent comments made by particular uh, members of the British government and the British ruling parties. Theresa May, for example, a no-deal Brexit would not be the end of the world. What's your reaction to that? Well, so she was quoting, uh, but clearly she believes it also, um, the head of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, made comments around that because clearly in a no-deal scenario there is this uh, fallback position of the World Trade Organization rules. So I think she's echoing that. I think it would have been better had she not said that, because who wants to get close to the end of the world? It might not be the end of the world, but it could be the next best planet to it. So I don't think that's a great place for any prime minister or leader uh, to be putting their country in. It's also important to say, when I mentioned the WTO, it does exist, but it is under attack from the United States, from, from Donald Trump. So it's not functioning as effectively as it should be. So those who would uh, seek to rely only on this global architecture to govern trade might find that difficult as well. I think that the British Prime Minister, um, to give her uh, her due, is still trying to balance political um, divisions within the Conservative Party. She is trying to um, soften what the Philip Hammond said. He is much more, um, I think, upfront and real about the consequences of a no-deal Brexit. Uh, she's, she's balancing his view, which is warning, with those who believe that um, you know Brexit is the best thing that could ever happen to the United Kingdom. And in that kind of tabloid uh, world, what we are forgetting about, and perhaps the UK is forgetting about, is the detail of so many facets of lives uh, of people, citizens in the United Kingdom, of uh, business, um, of you know social rights, all sorts of things are governed currently by EU agreements and rules and procedures. And that if the UK pulls out, while they may hold on to some of those for a time, they don't, there's no governance structure. So that it is a very serious um, scenario to see that at the end of March next year, we would have such political stalemate that the United Kingdom and the European Union should fail to reach an agreement. I think that is unthinkable. But on the other hand, I know that Europe is preparing for it. The Irish government is trying to prepare for it. And the United Kingdom has recently come to uh, the table for its own sectors in, in saying what might happen. Interesting, they want business in Northern Ireland to talk to the Irish government <laughs> in that scenario, which I think is, is quite an interesting twist. It's, it's, it's becoming farcical in, in Paris, isn't it? I mean, it's very difficult to have confidence in Theresa May's ability to get this across the line when she can't even get unity within her own party. Well, I mean, I suppose as a politician, I can appreciate the difficulty she faces as leader of a party that's so, I was going to say dysfunctional, but, but almost that, but certainly that's not united around this issue. But she doesn't have time on this, Mairead. She, she does pardon me? She doesn't have time on this. We're, we're seven months away. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, we're, we're, the truth of this is that October is the next deadline. People are beginning to say that that won't be achieved now. It might be November. If it goes beyond that, there's a whole lot of procedures have to happen if there is a deal. It has to be verified by the European Parliament. That takes time. The member states have to look at it. There's voting procedures. The House of Commons has to look at it. So it's not as if we can run to the wire um, of like mid-March and ho- hope that all will be well. You know, if, if things don't begin to look by the end of October and we might stretch it into November, 
then I think the nerves will set in across all sectors. But already, and I've been involved in conferences with various sectors in the Irish economy, um, a lot of hard work and preparation is going in to meet a no-deal scenario. And it's costing businesses to plan for this. It's costing them time and effort and energy and resources. Um, And we hope that that won't have to be used. But it is certainly gearing up. Um, And the the temperature will increase as we go towards the end of this year. Now, part of the farcical nature of all of this, of course, is our old friend Jacob Rees-Moggs. And he said that he wants, if there's no deal post-Brexit, we can go back to inspections at the border like we had during the Troubles. Is he for real? Well, he is for real because he's very prominent, certainly in the British media. Um, He is a politician who has absolute views, um, which I think is quite dangerous, um, and who believes passionately that the European Union is the cause of all difficulties for the United Kingdom and there is a great and glorious world ahead of the United Kingdom without the European Union. I don't share his views or his political orientation. I certainly had real um, concern about his language around the the troubles in Northern Ireland. And I think the reaction to his comments was very strong. It it showed a lack of understanding of the sensitivity of the issue, how we have moved so forward uh, because of the peace process, but how it is still a fragile relationship between the communities and how our membership of the European Union, our shared membership of the European Union, allowed us to develop better relationships. One of the worries I have about Brexit, yes, the United Kingdom will be missing from the European Parliament and indeed from debates and in the Council, but also be missing from the informal meetings that I have on a regular basis. I meet people in the corridor, in the lift, over coffee, where we chat about things and get to understand whether it's a UK MEP or a Croatian MEP. We understand each other's situations and what people are talking about on the ground, and we develop good relationships. That will all go um, post-Brexit. And when I say this to Brexiteers, they say, well, we set up other structures. And and I think that's really regrettable. You're not going going to bump into a a, a Tory party uh, European Parliament member if they're not there, are you? You're not just going to bump into them in the street or in the coffee shop or... Yeah, and, and those informal contexts, as people say it's over the, the you know, the, the coffees or whatever, they make a difference when we're trying to make progress on things because you, you get to understand people and politics is ultimately about people. I think the sad things about comments like that made by people like um, Jacob Rees-Mogg that you just quoted is that he gets such attention, such media attention, uh, which emboldens him to be even more dramatic the next time he speaks out. And the entire... Brexit debate, both before the referendum, during and now, seeks to divide people into camps for or against Europe, for, for or against Brexit. When, and when in, in point of fact, those divisions are very dangerous because they then suggest that one um, nationality is more superior to another. The European Union, for all its flaws, what it seeks to do is to allow nations uh, cool sovereignty but to respect each other's sovereignty but where the big and the small have equal say at the table where my voice is one of 11 Irish MEPs is listened to as it was this morning in the same way as the voice of a German MEP is listened to and respected. I think that Brexit is, is a sign of a politics which I'm afraid is on the rise across Europe uh, and it's not a very healthy politics and it isn't a politics that allows us get on and do business and make progress. The good news, Mairead, if there is any at the moment, is that at the foreign minister's meeting in Germany, which Simon Coveney is at, Heiko Maas, the German foreign minister, said that it, the 
pivotal part of this negotiation at the present is to avoid a hard border between North and South in Ireland. That's good news. Yeah, well, and I think you, you, you're right to bring that up here because it, it's extremely positive. It, it reassures us uh, in Ireland that our concerns on the border are not just our concerns. And when I was, you know, working over the summer and talking to groups, there was that sense of uncertainty. Will Europe support us on this issue? Uh, and I really wanted people to be reassured that this is a much bigger issue for uh, my colleagues than you might imagine because the European Union very foundations were about peace. Um, because of, you know, conflict and war and horror. Not just, and and, and not just in Ireland. Exactly, but, but primarily it was about, you know, the world war issue. So when the Northern Ireland question was being discussed and people were trying to help build peace on the island of Ireland, the European Union was front and centre in supporting that publicly, privately and with finance and reinforcing its view that building peace does not happen overnight, it's over time. And therefore, it doesn't surprise me, but it does reassure me that the comments yesterday in Germany suggest that that this question of no hard border on the island of Ireland is a pivotal one because of this profound view that peace and peace building is at the very core of the European Union. It isn't just about money and trade and business and those harder things which are important. It is about a more fundamental bringing together of people, restoring peace where there's conflict, but also continuing to build relationships which secure peace. And and I think, you know, the more I sit in the European Parliament, the more I realise that peace is very fragile and relationships between countries and communities is a very fragile thing unless it's nurtured. And Brexit is a step backwards, in my view, and a very, very difficult one. I have more good news for you then because the French President Emmanuel Macron has said that preserving European Union unity is more important than forging a close relationship with post-Brexit Britain and the exact quote is France wants to maintain a strong special relationship with London but not if the cost is the European Union's unravelling. You see that is fundamentally the issue here. Is it um, valid to allow a member state that's leaving the European Union to shape the future of the European Union of 27. And Europe, collectively, 27, is saying, no, we need, uh, first and foremost, to protect the structures and the, the, you know, what we have built to date. And we cannot allow the United Kingdom, outside of the European Union, to unpick uh, parts of the European Union that it would seek to unpick. And remember, there are those in the United Kingdom, there are many in this Parliament here from the United Kingdom that aren't part of the Conservative Party, but their desire is not just to get the UK out, it is to uh, see a dismantling of the European Union. And from an Irish point of view, that would be quite, uh, for my part anyway, horrific if that were to happen, because there is a strength in being together with others. We have um, a, a bigger voice at the European stage. The idea of Europe dismantling you know, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that it can happen, but I think um, President Macron of France and others are mindful that we have to be careful in the road ahead not to allow it, uh, the European Union unravel and to be stronger together than perhaps we have been in the past because of Brexit. Mairead McGuinness, thank you so much for taking time to join us from Brussels Good this morning, morning. and we thank you for your contribution. Uh, just as an aside to all of that, U2 frontman Bono has written for one of the biggest papers in Germany this morning ahead of their 
tour which kicks off in Berlin this week and they are going to wear a big bright blue EU flag during the concert. He said, he told the German nation that belonging to Europe has enabled Ireland to become a better, more confident version of ourselves. We stand a bit taller amongst friends. So Bono clearly in favour of the EU post-Brexit. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. You're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. On yesterday's programme, we heard from local TD Declan Brannock and from the St Vincent de Paul about the impact of the failure to pay the back to school clothing and footwear allowance to so many families ahead of the return to school this week. Tonight, the Oireachtas Education Committee will start to meet a two day meeting which will discuss school building plans, green spaces, school staffing and resources, and probably most importantly to listeners, the cost to parents of the return to school this week. Joining us to discuss this now is Deputy Kathleen Funchen, who's the Sinn Féin spokesperson on education. Good morning to you, Deputy. Good morning, how are you? I'm very good. Can I ask you the, your, your own reaction to the St Vincent de Paul findings yesterday that the, the, there is a 20% increase in the number of calls to them asking for help with back-to-school costs? Well, I'd like to say I'm surprised, but unfortunately I'm not because we have, um, for the last number of years, and I would have a huge amount of people contacting us as well in relation to either back to school payments and the you know, the amount of that or if there's any sort of a delay with that because there can be difficulties. Some people seem to just get it every year, then other people have to apply. It's 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 a bit of a confusing payment for people. And then when the the school costs just increase year on year and you have obviously you've got your books, uh, anyone who is in a rural area has to pay for school transport, which is to be done by the end of July every year. You have the voluntary contribution, which most parents will tell you is not very voluntary in a lot of schools. Um, you've got the uniforms. There's just so much expense now with the kids going back to school. So I'm not one bit surprised that there's been um, an increase in people calling the Vincent de Paul, but it just goes to show that really we do need to see action taken on this in relation to the costs because there was a, a report as well earlier in the summer that said that a huge amount of parents are actually going to money lenders. It's even gone past the sort of going to the credit union. It's it's going to money lenders, and it's crazy to think that just to send your kids back to school that you would be forced to to go to a money lender or to a credit union because I mean, you're starting off, you know, getting yourself into debt. And as every parent will tell you as well, it's not just at this time of year. There's always different expenses throughout the year money for this and, and school trips and different things. And are, are, are you surprised, Deputy, that the the failure of the department uh, to, to pay this back-to-school allowance? Because by the very nature of its term, it's a back-to-school allowance yeah. and, and so many families have not received this. The department has shut down its phone lines because they're inundated with, with applications. But why wasn't this paid in July? It should have been, exactly. It should have been paid in... It, it starts, the payment starts actually in June kind of end of June and that's when it should have been paid and also it's been impossible for anyone to get any information on the situation and for even us as public reps to get information for people you're dead right they have just literally shut down um, I think it's 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 like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever it's actually ridiculous and there should have been provision put in place if they had a difficulty if something went wrong then they should have got in you know extra staff to deal with it to ensure that people had the payment because so many kids, you know, it's really this week and some even started back in secondary school last week. So it's very, it's very, very late for parents to be um, getting that money, you know, and obviously for some of them it's too late. They've had to chase or to go to Vincent de Paul or go to um, to other sources and it's not really fair um, on parents. And then what I always say is it completely impacts on the, um, on the students and on how they feel and their own... Well, there's nothing worse than a child going into school and knowing they don't have the books 
or knowing that they, you know, they don't have the money for whatever is due this week. And, and that's a horrible feeling for students. And school is difficult enough as it is without having kids going in, you know, facing that situation. And Would you expect, Deputy, that this will be one of the burning issues when the Oireachtas Education Committee begins to meet today? Definitely. The, the payment of that allowance, the, the fact that there's been such massive delays in it, but also as well there's a huge amount of parents that don't qualify um, for that payment and they might just narrowly miss out and then there's sort of no assistance for them. That's why we need to see things like one of the things that we're going to be calling for is uh, to try and increase the capitation for schools. For example, if you increase capitation to schools by 5%, there's a cost of, of €10 million Euro to do that. But it would mean that for a lot of schools that are sort of, you know, forced maybe to ask parents for this voluntary contribution, it would take the pressure off that way. It would take the pressure off the schools and the pressure off parents. And it's one measure that would assist everybody because I would be very aware that, you know, it did not everyone qualifies for that payment. And it can be very, very difficult if you have three or four kids in school and you just narrowly miss out on the on the kind of guidelines for it. So we need to look at other measures as well. And we need to look at things around kind of generic uniforms, and school book rental and I think a lot of this could be done um, earlier in the year as well with schools like I know for my own kids going back it was they were finished their summer holidays before we got their book lists like if we were able to get book lists earlier in the year and try and you know, somehow kind of spread out the payment. And I'm not saying that that's a solution. It's certainly not. Um, some some kind of short-term measures we could do. But to be, fair, to be fair to the schools, they've had their government funding cut as well, haven't oh, they? No, all they have all across the board. Yeah, no, and that's why that's why they, they're sort of forced into this situation where they're asking parents for a voluntary contribution. It's, it's completely unfair on them as well. But all I'm saying is certain schools can be excellent and really work very well with parents and be very, very understanding. And then you will get situations, unfortunately, where parents feel under serious pressure with, you know, texts and letters coming home about the voluntary contribution. But if, if we look at increasing the capitation, that solves a, a lot of that problem and it can help the schools and help the parents. And it's sort of across the board. But we need to look at increasing the back-to-school payment as well. There's, there's so many measures, but I, I think some of the things around the generic uniforms and the school book rental we really need to get the minister and the department to look at this seriously because every year we have the same conversation in July and August about the costs and how they're increasing and people are under pressure like these are there, there is some short term measures that can be done around school book rental and different things like that that would take the pressure off and I just I, I really wish the minister would sort of focus in on this because it's sort of not doesn't seem to be a priority for the government and yes for parents and for kids it's, it's such a stressful time of year because you're trying to see how you're going to be able to afford absolutely everything for them. Kathleen, thank you so much. That's Deputy Kathleen Funchen, who's the Sinn Féin spokesperson on education and we are now going to be joined by Marie Cairns. Good morning to you Marie. Good morning to you, Cahill. Can you hear me there? I can hear you now. Thank you so much for coming into us uh, with a review of the papers. Yes, but before I go to that, just to say that the M1 has reopened there at Junction 5 Southbound this morning. There was an accident there Fake and it had accident. been closed off. So it has reopened just for anybody listening in who's travelling. Yes, to the papers, Cahill. And lots going on. We'll go to Dundalk first, if that's all right with you. <laughs> and we'll go to the Argus newspaper. Uh, and I don't know if you're aware of it or not, Cahill, but it's the Deb season. Do you remember right, the Debs? Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Argus have a beautiful picture on the front page of eight 
gorgeous girls heading off to St Vincent's Secondary School Ball and they four pages inside with lots of pictures of that, lots of treasured memories for people to keep. We'll be talking lots about the papal visit this week. Of course, we have been already and a story in the Argus caught my eye about a local couple. Her name is Katie Bailey mm. um, and they, she's from the area mm. and they were th- th- this couple, they were among the 250 married and engaged couples who had a special audience with the Pope in the Pro-Cathedral on Saturday afternoon. And they were they were couples who got married or engaged That's this right, year or, yes. or in 1979 when the Pope That's was That's right. Last. And in the interview with Margaret Roddy, Katie is saying that it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and a very special memory. And um, in the Dundalk Democrat then, it's a new dawn there as a, in Dundalk as a school opens. And that's the headline of the paper. And it's referring to Dundalk's newest school, Colostra Lou and Colostra Cullen, which caters for approximately eight, uh, no, 1,100 pupils. So big enough school there. And inside, they've a really quirky story that I loved. It's regarding a Jenkins town man, Ambrose McDermott, who might just have grown the biggest mushroom <laughs> in Ireland. I'm not joking, you can't have a look. It really is ginormous, measuring 12 inches by 12 inches. I love my mushrooms now, but I don't know. That'll they take a, a lot of cutting to, to cook that. Omelet. You yeah. get a fair mushroom on the that. <laughs> you would, you surely would. <laughs> the dog leader then uh, have a great picture of the loud ladies on the front page. They've reached the All-Ireland loud team in the All-Ireland final. Yes, and that's following that uh, victory against Derry, of course, over the weekend. So September 16th is the date everybody will be looking forward to for that encounter. And for a very special coach who died, aren't they? That's right, they are. So good good luck to them. And we'll all be rooting for them. Uh, the Drogheda, to Drogheda then, the Drogheda Independent. And there's there's nothing like a good news story to warm the heart, Michael. Or I was going to call you Michael, Carl. <laughs> I'm so used to saying Michael. And, and cheer you up. And the front page of the Drogheda Independent has that this week. Uh, Alison Common is reporting about a local teenager who'd be well known, uh, Hannah Donnelly is her name, but affectionately known uh, locally as Hannah the Warrior Princess. And Hannah, unfortunately, has been in Temple Street Hospital since March of 2017. But the great news is, Carl, that she can now be moved to the Lord's Hospital after defying experts who said that she may never breathe unaided again. And although she still has a long road ahead of her, it, it, it really is fantastic news for the 17-year-old. She has a rare condition called Apert Syndrome. And after complications arose during surgery last year, she was effectively affected by that locked-in syndrome, it's called. And I believe that the move is going to happen in the next couple of weeks. That's what the paper is saying. And the hope is that the next step would be for Hannah to return home when there is a home care package in place. And of course, locals are busy fundraising to help make that happen. So great news all and around. The best, and the best look to Hannah. Yes. And to all her friends and family. And that, that they're good stories. They really are. Uh, to your own county, the uh, Royal I'm County still, next. I'm still, I'm still a blow in, going to the locals. <laughs> and uh, the Meath Chronicle, they're also uh, doing a lot of coverage on the Pope this week, as we all are. And they too have a story about an engaged couple. Uh, this couple are from County Meath. Dennis Nulty from Slane and Sinead Kogan from Rush Ree, who were one of three couples who met the Pope and spoke to him. And Sinead is quoting as saying, we felt really privileged to meet Pope Francis. Uh, but were very nervous beforehand, as I'm sure you would be. And uh, there's a two-page special inside the Chronicle this week detailing stories of locals who attended various events over the weekend. And that's very interesting too. A papal blessing ahead of your wedding isn't a bad thing, is it? No. But to get it in person. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty special. Actually, meet the Pope now and have the Pope bless your your union ahead yeah, of your Yeah, so life there were together, plenty so. of Louth and Mead people, you know, involved and getting the opportunity. And the Mead Intermediate Ladies team are also in the All Ireland final, by the way. There's lots of that in the Mead Chronicle this week. Oh, that that just didn't catch my eye. <laughs> it wasn't on the front page. I just didn't it didn't jump out at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say another hello to Hannah Donnelly because I think that's a lovely story. Yes, and it'll be so. Do you know what? It'll be great for her to be home as well in in the Lord's Hospital. And I say home in the Lord's hospital first because you know the trek to Dublin it's harder mm. to get in but at least when you're local family and, and friends can pop in whenever they and want. as we know for all the bashing that the health service gets the nurses in the Lourdes will look after her brilliantly. They will and you know something she's a very special girl because before she, um, this happened to her the surgery and, and she was left in hospital do you know what she used to do every day despite her own battles she used to fundraise to collect to buy and collect Christmas presents for the uh, fifth floor, the children's floor in Our Lady of, Hos- of Lord's Hospital because That's of the amount of time that she spent in there. Hannah so. Donnelly, we salute you and we wish you a very safe journey back home to Drada, back home to the Lord's Hospital and hopefully very soon back home to your own house. We're going to be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if you pick up the papers this morning, you will see that on post have confirmed the closure of 159 post offices across the country, predominantly in rural Ireland, in areas of population of less than 500. This follows an agreement which has been reached between UnPost and the Irish Postmasters Union. The deal will see those 159 postmasters retire and their offices closed. 16 such offices have already closed in Louth and in Gasson is the only post office affected in Louth. In Meath we have Batterstown, Belliestown, Clanalvey, Drumree, Dunsany, Rathmaline and Tara and the post officers, postmasters who have served their community so well in those post offices are about to retire. Join us to discuss this and the impact on rural Ireland is Seamus Boland, who's the Chief Executive of Irish Rural Link, and Deputy Palato being Sinn Féin Spokesman on Arts, Heritage and Culture and the Gaeltacht, and of course TD for Mead West. Good morning to you, Seamus. Good morning, Do you see this, Seamus, as an attack on rural Ireland, as has been suggested? It's part of the uh, continued attack as far as we're concerned. It represents... uh, since the book uh, by a journalist in there, Sam Healy, uh, back in, in was it the 70s or 80s, when, when they said no one shall had stopped. It represents a continual decline in, in the basic unit in the rural area, which is a village or town. And the post office closure in this case, which of course was very cleverly done, uh, it was done sort of by getting the postmasters to retire in a package, and, and that's fair enough. But it does mean, uh, it means serious inconvenience for people who use these post offices uh, and who now can't. And of course, my, my, my good friends in, in, I live in Dunsany, so Dunsany post office has been very close to us over the years. Battersdown is only up the road. Drumree yeah. is only up the road. Tara is only up the road. And nobody will, 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 will begrudge the postmasters in these instances a happy retirement and very best of luck to them. But there's no reason... Surely, Seamus, why the service has to retire as well? No, and 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 again, I I'm not in any way blaming postmasters. They've served the communities very well. They've often been the main point of contact for people trying to figure out, you know, problems in social welfare and stuff like that. They've been brilliant people within the community, and they are not to be grudged. But it is like we ha- I heard the um, person from the post on ground this morning talking about the, so many news. Uh, services and vision for the post office. I think if you're if you're taking away your service 
from these small villages, then the vision for the post office is pretty uh, thin, to say the least. And these are the units, these are the places where we'll grow, are supposed to grow under the 2040 plan, which was announced earlier, to great acclaim. Uh, but they're not going to grow if you're taking one of the most important units, which is a mixture of finance, a mixture of advice out of the area, and then leaving it, uh, leave, uh, forcing people effectively to travel uh, further up the road or down the road in order to get the same service. Now, we're also joined on the line this morning by Deputy Palatobin. Good morning to you, Deputy. Good morning. Turning the lights off in rural Ireland, the post office is only the latest service to close in many communities, isn't it? Like it's, it, if you look at the trends population-wise over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, they've been radical. And there has been significant depopulation of rural areas in the country and massive concentrations of population and investment in Dublin. And that's to the detriment of both Dublin and rural areas because people in Dublin are obviously dealing with massive house prices, congestion, can't get their kids into schools. And now they're talking about bringing water from the Partine Basin over to, um, to Dublin because of the lack of water there. So it's not good to have rudderless spatial development in the country. And that's what Fine Gael have done. So for the, since 2002, we haven't had a, a national spatial plan. And during that time, uh, the government have accelerated the attack on rural communities by just stripping out services. So obviously the post office is the latest, um, and obviously hundreds have already gone post office-wise. This is just the latest cuts uh, in post office services. But we see banks and schools and garda stations and businesses uh, leaving uh, rural Ireland. And when a post office leaves a, a town or a village, it reduces the footfall in that town or a village. And there is usually a, a threshold of footfall in a town or village, which if it goes below that, it has a domino effect on any other business uh, in, operating there as well. So, you know, if people are being forced to travel 10 and 15 kilometres or 30 kilometres round trip, well, then they're not going to be going into the businesses in the original town or village, and that's going to suffer as a result. And, and there's a human side to this as well. You know, um, people talk about broadband connectivity, and that is very important. But human connectivity is also very important. And we know for a fact that if in, in rural Ireland, uh, certain uh, groups of people, when they don't meet regularly with other neighbours, friends and, 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 and workers, Uh, It's not good for their physical and mental health. And there's something invisible happening here that people don't realise. Not only are uh, rural areas being depopulated, but young people are leaving rural areas in bigger numbers. So the average age in Balbriggan, for example, is 30, and the average age in Clarny is over 40 now. And it's that young cohort of people who have the energy, um, who start businesses, who start uh, enterprises, they're leaving those rural areas and that has a self-fulfilling uh, effect because they're not going to be around in those rural areas to start the new businesses, the enterprises uh, and, and the community developments. They're going to be stuck commuting at the edge of ma- major cities like Dublin uh, and that's not good for them either. Father, what do you say to the argument from Unpost that you know the, the, the nearest post office will now be within 15 kilometres that for example they've opened a new post office or they're about to open a new post office in Kentstown? Well, obviously, first of all, they're closing 159 post offices now. They went seeking the closure of 230 post offices. So they were looking for far more than they actually achieved. And also, I've had the CEO of Unpost say to me in committee that they feel that there are 500 post offices in the country that are not economically sustainable. So what I say back to Unpost and what I say to Fine Gael is make them economically sustainable. 
you know, uh, improve the level of services that they can provide so that they draw the footfall that makes them sustainable. Now, uh, right now in, in, in towns like Clonmelon, in Collinstown, um, in, in um, uh, Rathmaline, there's obviously, there's no bank. There's very bad broadband, so people can't internet bank. And people need cash to be able to do business and what uh, businesses are left. But they can't get that cash now because the post offices are disappearing in, in those spaces. So uh, improve the banking facilities within the post offices so that more people are drawn back to them, and that they can get loans from them, um, uh, etc. Improve that they can, they can purchase insurance off them. Uh, improve it so that they become hubs of um, government services, one-stop shop services. Um, you know, if the government were thinking creatively here, in areas with no broadband, they could actually create internet hubs, hot desking, where people could actually go into the building and work for the day and bring but, customers into the but building. But Willem, Puss not tell you that in the likes of Clonalvi, the population just isn't there to support that financially? Well, first of all, Unpus made a profit last year. So we're talking about a profitable semi-state uh, company that's actually closing services. And Unpust has a, a number of responsibilities. Yes, it needs to be able to wash its face financially. We want Unpust to be in, in a profitable situation. But it, it, it's also a tool of government policy. And government policy should be for fair distribution of, uh, of services and good spatial planning. And Ireland is developing into a city-state. Under the government plans, 50% of the population will actually reside in Dublin in the future. That is an outlier in European terms and it's extremely unhealthy for both rural and urban areas. And what I'm saying to the government is have even balanced spatial development. And UNPUST is a tool in achieving that. And make sure that UNPUST has the services to bring back a sustainable level of enterprise into these towns. I know, for example, in, in some of these towns, they're beautiful main streets, big, broad main streets. And people, like only one in every three houses on the main street is actually occupied at the moment. The rest are standing derelict. And that's at a time of serious housing uh, crisis. You might also it, it, find that only one in three businesses are open. Well, and, and that's the case. Uh, like, I, I, I know for one, one time, for example, in the boom time, a whole lot of people moved out of Dublin and bought and are living in, in the estates in the town. But the businesses are closing, the post office has closed, the Garda station has closed, the roads are rubbish around us because the government have cut back uh, on, on investment in the roads. And these people... They work in Dublin, they socialise in Dublin, and they do their shopping in Dublin, and they come home to these villages to sleep. And there is no community help in that type of promise. And Fianna Gael are at the back of that movement. And, you know, with the proper investment, they can make those areas sustainable, they can bring the businesses back into them, and they can make sure that people can can purchase, socialise, and even work in in, in a location that's only a few miles away. Just to get back to the post offices, Seamus, can I ask you, um, and and I'm going to cite something that's very local to me because I live just outside Dunshockland. So Yvonne and Dunshockland Post Office is now... Basically, the postmaster for Batterstown, Drumreed, Unsaney and Tara, and Post will tell you, Kilmesson as well, will deal with some of that. So, within 15 kilometres, they're saying you have access to a local post office. I'm an 85-year-old pensioner. I don't have a car. I live down a small country road. How do I get to the post office in Dunshockton? Well, that's that's the $64,000 question. Probably you don't, unless there's a local community bus service running in that area, or unless you can pay a taxi, which is completely defeats the purpose of your pension, because pensions are not that high. You can afford taxis every day. Uh, as Paller says, it means you're not going to 
going to the local village where you paid for some groceries, etc. Uh, so you take away from the village. So one way or another, this uh, closure, this announcement, again, ignores the plight of, of uh, not the majority, but a significant minority of older people who do not, for various health reasons, have a car at hand, who can't afford a car because of their circumstances. Uh, and they now are hoping and begging uh, local people, friends, relatives to try and collect the pension for them. Seamus, thank you so much. That's Seamus Boland, Chief Executive of Irish Rural Link and our thanks also to Deputy Padre Tobin, Sinn Féin spokesperson on arts, heritage, culture in the Gaeltop and of course TD for Mead West. We thank both Seamus and Deputy Padre Tobin for their time this morning. We'll be back with the news headlines after this break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And this is the Michael Reed Show. You're most welcome back. Already we are Wednesday of the week and we are still getting texts and emails about the papal visit. And Marie is joining us now with some comments. Marie. We are, but we're also getting some reaction to the closure of the post offices. We've had some phone calls already this morning from people genuinely concerned and annoyed mm. and angry. Teresa from County Mead is one such person. And I think angry might sum up her, her frame of mind this morning. She says, just listening in about the post offices, I noticed that Mead has been heavily hit with the closure of seven. What's wrong with the government? We have three ministers in Meath not doing anything for the county that voted them in, she's claiming. How are elderly people going to get to their nearest post office if they don't drive, if the nearest post office is now going to be a good few miles away? And she says it's time for the ministers in Meath to step up and do something for the county and those who elected them. So we will ask them on this programme. Harsh words there from Theresa. Uh, Irene, who's also from County Meath, says we uh, throughout Ireland we have seen uh, uh, rural areas lose guard stations. Some remote areas have even lost schools and now they are targeting the post offices. She says it's an absolute disgrace that there's seven closing in County Meath and she says where is the investment in rural areas? There seems to be none. It's all about the cities and yet we have a huge population in Meath. So many people commute from Meath now into the city, have moved out of the city to the suburb and she says she feels that the heart is being ripped out of local communities. We so, all, we certainly all, that was a, something that Padre Tobin and Seamus Boland both would agree with. Yes. Um, so John was also in touch and John says that we knew that this was coming down the line but yet nothing was done to prevent it happening. To be fair, Karen Ross mounted a campaign and Karen Ross succeeded in keeping their post office. Well, that that's true. They did. Now, tonight in Drogheda, there will be a meeting to discuss the city status for Drogheda, Marie. This That's is something right. close to your heart. Well, it's something that the town has been fighting for for a long time. They feel that the town has what it takes to become a city and have been fighting that campaign, but so far haven't been winning. <laughs> and join us to discuss that very subject is Peter Monan, who's a member of the Drogheda City Status Group. Peter, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Now, the future of Drogheda, we're talking in relation to the Ireland uh, 2040 plan. Yeah. Tonight's meeting, what's, what's on the agenda and why is this meeting being held? Right. Um, first of all, in the afterglow of the, 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 the magnificent flower, I want to be part of uh, this um, information giving to the people of Drogheda of our 10-year fight for city status. We have remarkable information we wish to share with the total population of the greater Drogheda area, which is 83,000 people. 
And, you know, I know people get fed up with figures and facts and figures, but I'm just going to give you two figures here from uh, our, our expert, Brian Hughes's uh, report. Dundalk, Black Rock, 39,000 population. Drogheda, Laytown, Bellystown, Morrington, 52,000 population. Now, you work that one out yourself, the differential in the population and the government's uh, proposal to give extra councillors to, to, to the north of the town, it, to me, is like building a Berlin Wall in Drogheda, and it's a form of gerrymandering. They're trying to, to, to perpetuate the, the, the situation that has existed for 30 years, where Drogheda has been second second in every instance of any decision made as to regards where the, the resources are spent. And I think we've got the population, we've got the proof, We've gone to the ministers, we've gone to the government, and now it's time for them to deliver. And that population is growing, Peter, isn't it? It's as we speak. We've 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 outpaced Waterford. We're bigger than Waterford now. And Waterford Waterford has city status. It has city status, and Kenny has city status. I mean, it's it's beyond belief. This this you couldn't make it up. It's like a horror film. I mean, to, to, like apart from say, for example, issues like toll, it, it's it's a failure of politics in the Drada area that. This has happened on the watch of all the politicians we've had representing us. I mean, they should have all collectively resigned uh, on numerous occasions over the last 20 years. As, as, you know, it's just beyond, it's just beyond belief. But so so who, who exactly are you going to have at this meeting tonight? Who will address the crowd tonight? Uh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm particularly a big part of the panel of the city status group, but we have a very interesting group there of people. We will have Professor Brian Hughes, who is, who is the gem we have luckily fallen upon over the last 10 years, who loves our town, and he's the leading spatial strategist in Ireland. And he is, he is going to be presenting the fascinating information that's in his report about those population figures, which are incontrovertible, and the government have not contradicted them in any way they and, can't. And who else will speak? Um, as far as I know, uh, we're going to have um, a few other people. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know the, okay. the full panel. I don't know the full panel. I'm just there. I, I think, the sorry to interrupt you there, I think there's some local representatives, Rory Scott, who was involved in the flag, yes, Karen Rory, Devine, yeah. I believe, is speaking, and a local uh, member of the community, Anne McVeigh, I think, is going to also make a contribution. Anne McVeigh, yeah, that's right. Just from reading the press release that I got earlier, <laughs> and, so I can remember that bit. <laughs> and, and as you rightly said, Peter, there's such a great body swell of... of goodness and, and good feeling about Drogheda past the FLA, post-FLA. So where should people attend and what time is the meeting, Peter? The meeting is 7.30 in, 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 in West Street in the, in the West Court Hotel and we welcome everybody of all shades of opinion because uh, it's, it's, it's like a community um, action, this. We want everybody involved. We want a, a FLA-type uh, commitment to this because we've had enough and we, our time has come. Drogheda is going to be Ireland's next city. There's no doubt about it. The, the, the evidence is there. It can't be denied. Any like In future, it just can't be denied. And the government is just and, going to have to accept it. And that meeting is at 7.30 tonight in the Westcourt Hotel. Peter, thank yes. you so much. That's Peter Monaghan, a member of the Drogheda City Status Group, meeting tonight in Drogheda at 7.30 in the Westcourt Hotel. That'll generate a little bit of interest. It should, Carl, and I think it's a good idea to build on the momentum that you know still exists in the town. And there's good, there's a good feeling following the. As flag. you know, I came over on the Sunday, and it was a wonderful occasion.
Yes, you and, do. You and, were. and well done to everybody in Drogheda. I thought it was great. You, you enjoyed it. So that, that's that meeting. But can I go back to some of the comments? Absolutely. Because Please we've had, we plenty to go through. We had John phoned in and John says, uh, wonderful to hear the Sinn Féin TDs on the radio with all the great ideas they have. And he says, it's a pity they can't show this type of leadership when it comes to the North, that they've left without management for so long. What type of leadership are they showing there? Now the world record for the biggest That's uh, right. developed country without a government. It's what, over 700 days now? Is it? I, yeah, I don't it's know. It's it seems to be going on forever huge, if you ask me. And it's, anyway. it's just a beggar's belief, Carl. It really does beggar belief. Podrick and Navin, he says, he, he phoned in and it was in relation to the presidential election. Of course, we've been doing lots of coverage mm. uh, with the, that uh, meeting in me the yesterday where the hopefuls put forward, or the day before yesterday where the hopefuls put forward their case. And he says, I'm just um, want to make a comment. I feel that the amount of candidates looking for a nomination is making a mockery of the whole thing. I just think has become a bit of a joke. You have every you have people from all walks of life. There's farmers, singers and the devil knows what, says Marlon And he says, I don't know if it's been taken serious enough. Now he says at this time it wasn't confirmed that Sean Gallagher was throwing mm. his hat in the ring. We had that on the 10 o'clock headlines but he he phoned in before that. He was saying, if Sean did throw his hat in the ring, I wouldn't mind him taking part. But he says, I don't know about so many going forward. So that's just his thoughts well, on I've it. I've seen 12 different names now at this stage. Have you? Without yeah. Michael D. Higgins. Yeah. And, and the election October 26th, so they haven't until September the 26th to declare or not. And I know we're going to be speaking to some of the councillors later on about that twist that we revealed on the show yesterday coming from the Fine Gael headquarters regarding their support and that they shouldn't be supporting candidates. And it's interesting too, Sean Gallagher's entry to the ring, how that will affect Gavin Duffy's chances because you think they, you know, they would be trying to take from the the same. Fight of the dragon. Yeah, I can see the headlines already. (laughs) Anyway, on the Pope's visit, as you stated, Mm. we still have stuff coming in on that. Tony phoned in and he says that he's fed up with Leo Varadkar lecturing the Pope on what he should do. He says that Leo should realise he's only been Taoiseach for a couple of years and what has he done in his role? Look at all the housing problems and the vulture funds and all that's going on. He says that he can't really afford to criticise others. He'd be better minded to try and get the country back on its feet because the worst thing now is that the next bubble is about to burst, says Tony. Dublin house prices 25% above where they should be. Rents in Dublin are the sixth highest in the developed world and prices since the recession are up 62%. I shudder at the thoughts of it, Cahill, and I just feel so relieved that we were we're at, we're at the other end yes, of that. Yes, yeah. but for anyone, anyone trying to rent or trying to get on the property ladder, and we, we have adult children, so we know the tough task that's ahead of them and I, I just feel so sorry for them and I can understand why people are feeling so frustrated. So listen, we'll finish on that. And we will be talking about the homeless crisis amongst other things after the rake with Father Peter McVerry. We're going to be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. And thank you for joining us on the Michael Reed Show this morning. Cahill Dervin of the Irish Sun sitting in for Michael. 86 658 is our text line and our next guest is Father Peter McVerry, a Jesuit priest who works so brilliantly with the homeless in Dublin and who wrote yesterday in the Irish Daily Mail about the papal visit and his intro was the visit of Pope Francis to Ireland a success. Good morning to you, Father Peter. Good morning, yes. Was the visit of Pope Francis to Ireland a success, do you think? For many hundreds of thousands of people who welcomed him with great enthusiasm, 
yes, it was a success. Uh, I think they benefited enormously from the occasion. It confirmed their faith. Uh, I think they would certainly judge it to have been a great success. However, there were many who wouldn't consider it a success. To, the, to, to those, Father, who, who, did, who did consider success, were they ignored by the media in the build-up, do you think? I think there was, and I was afraid of this, there was a, a very, very heavy emphasis on the, uh, the abuse uh, situation and, uh, <clears throat> and the other scandals that have affected the church. And we knew there would be protests, and rightly so, there should have been protests. <clears throat> but I think the media focused on the protest uh, to the detriment of the uh, the actual visit itself and what it meant to so many people. And that is one of the conundrums facing the Catholic Church at the moment, isn't it? Oh, it's an enormous one. I mean, there is so much there that uh, uh, that is to be uh, reformed, really. And those who <clears throat> those who were survivors of of abuse uh, uh, were looking for action, uh, and they didn't get action. Uh, and so I think they felt that the visit was a. Uh, it was really a non-event. It, it was the church had failed uh, to to address the issues which they were trying to uh, which they were trying to raise. I'm just going so, to read you a, a text, Father, that we we received from a raid, and, and very briefly, why did the Pope not have couples who are getting married to same sex or unmarried mothers? And this is when the Pope met so many couples who who got married either in 1979 or are getting married this year. She says it was world meeting of family, so in his eyes, only the so-called perfect couple could meet him. Is that a fair comment? I think it is, and it's a comment I made in the article in the Daily Mail. There were those who felt excluded from this event, uh, the LGBT community, for example, people who are in second relationships. <clears throat> they saw this as a cosy celebration of traditional family life, and uh, their alienation from the church was confirmed, I think, by this papal visit, and the fact that uh, there was absolutely no reaching out to them, there was absolutely no uh, mention of, of other forms of family, which is becoming, I mean, Ireland is no longer the Ireland of 1979. There are many people in diverse family relationships, uh, and somehow, and Pope Francis would, would, and would be the first to want to reach out uh, uh, to, to, to them. Uh, so, do you, do think, you think do you think he wasn't allowed? Do you think he was he was controlled I, from above? I, I think he he wasn't allowed. No, mm. I think there are many in the uh, the church in the Vatican uh, who want the church to remain a legalistic church, laying down the laws, telling people you must obey these laws. If you don't obey these laws, then we will exclude you. I don't think Francis wants that sort of church at all. I think he's trying to move to a more pastoral church which uh, reaches out to those on the margins and within the church, the LGBT community and those in second relationships are on the margins. So I think he, he, I have personally the greatest respect for Pope Francis. I think he's absolutely wonderful, but he realises the opposition that he has uh, within the uh, within the Vatican. You also made the point in your Daily Mail article uh, that for those women who feel marginalised in their own church, the sight of hundreds of men in, in Investment celebrating, concelebrating mass will confirm to them that women are in reality second-class citizens in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, I know one woman who said she just felt so angry <clears throat> looking at that mass, and I must say I felt it too. I just felt, you know, hundreds of, of males, 
hundreds of men celebrating Mass. What is that saying to women in the church? <laughs> I, I just uh, think it was very, very uh, off-putting to, to those women who feel uh, that they are second-class citizens in the church. Again, I think it would have reinforced their uh, image of themselves as, as second-class citizens. And so that's why I said that the visit was an enormous success for those who uh, welcome Pope Francis with great enthusiasm. Which, the, which, they are quite ent- which they are quite entitled to do, to yeah. be fair. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. And just as but the it ma- was not a success for, yeah. for many other groups who felt alienated, who felt uh, marginalised, who felt rejected by the Church. It was, uh, it, was, it was a disaster, actually, for them. And just as we in the media are quite entitled to highlight those, those stories and those predicaments. Just before we, we, we talk about the homeless, Father, can, I, can you tell us the story about uh, Pope Francis and the Argentinian pilgrims that he met? In, because this sort of highlights in many ways the, the, the difference between the Jesuit Pope and, and those who are trying to control him in, inside the Vatican. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a lovely story. I can't remember where I heard it first. I don't know if it's true or not, but sure, don't let... Uh, these don't days, let these fake, days. <laughs> don't let fake news get in the way of a good story. <laughs> he was going around St. Peter's Square greeting the pilgrims, and he came across a group of Argentinian pilgrims, <clears throat> and he was chatting away to them. And one of them had a flask of tea, and he handed the Pope uh, flat the flask and invited him to take a sip of tea out of it. So the Pope took the flask, took a sip of tea out of it <clears throat> and of course his security came down on him like a ton of bricks <laughs> and said holy father holy father you can't do that they might be trying to poison you and uh, his reply was relax relax they're only argentinian pilgrims they're not cardinals <laughs> i love so he that he knows what he's up against i loved i love that story when i read it yesterday <laughs> yeah he knows what he's up against and he's trying to change that how does he but change? He has to be how, very careful. how does he, he change? Changes it? it by removing people from key posts and putting in his own people who think like him into those posts. But he has to do it. He can't just clean the slate uh, overnight. He has to do this uh, uh, piecemeal. He has to do it carefully, uh, and he has to do it over time. And he's doing it. And I have great hope. As I said at the end of that article, for me, the visit <clears throat> was a, a, a sign of great hope. I think Pope Francis is trying to change the church. I think he has the vision to, and the determination to change the church, uh, and he will change the church, but it can't happen overnight. Were you invited to meet him, Father? I met him with a group of Jesuits, yes. We mm. had a private meeting with him. Uh, it was actually very rushed uh, because he was uh, he had met the abuse survivors <clears throat> just before us. That meeting had gone on twice as long as it was scheduled to go on for. I think it was an hour and a half, wasn't it? It was an hour and a half, and it was obviously a very bruising meeting for him. Uh, he came out exhausted and drained from that meeting. Uh, and Did some of the survivors said that, you know, he, he did, he was actually very shocked at what they were telling him. It didn't, it didn't seem that he was aware of a lot of the subjects that they brought up. No, I think that's one of the uh, faults of this visit. He wasn't briefed. He wasn't mm. briefed about the situation in Ireland. He didn't know anything about the Magdalene Laundries. He didn't know anything about the, uh, the mother and baby's homes or the illegal adoptions. And he didn't know anything about the social and economic situation in Ireland. He didn't make any reference to the growing numbers of homeless people, to the people who are living in, <coughs> in, in accommodation, fearful of being evicted because their home will be repossessed or the rents will go through the roof. When Leo... Uh, Veradker uh, chastised him and very nicely chastised him 
I thought that was a real opportunity for the Pope to chastise Leo and ask him what's he doing about all these homeless people, <clears throat> you know. Uh, so I think uh, I would have liked to have seen him briefed on Ireland when I think when the Pope comes to a country, I think he should have a good understanding of, of what's happening in that country and he should be able to speak to that understanding. He is a Pope who has a great sense of social justice, who's not, prefer, not afraid to call a spade a spade, and I would have loved if in Ireland he had come and he had, uh, had done that. We did get the impression that he moved off script as the trip developed because, as, as you suggested there, he was learning more and more as he went along. Yes, he did. He, he, he was learning more and more and he did move a bit off script, but uh, not very much off script, but he did now, move a little bit. <laughs> well, you say Leo Varadkar didn't get a yellow card from the Pope, uh, you yourself in your Daily Mail article yesterday gave Leo a bit of a yellow card over his speech on Saturday. No, the speech was excellent. I have no problem with Leo's speech. He did it with great, uh, with great, uh, uh, with great respect. Uh, uh, no, I thought his speech was excellent. Mm. Uh, Leo's speech was excellent. I think he was perfectly entitled to uh, say what he said uh, to the church. <clears throat> but as I say, it was an opportunity for Pope Francis to talk about social justice within Ireland. Mm. That, uh, you know, we have a growing number of homeless people. We have families ravaged by addiction. We have uh, families living in fear of repossession or the rents going through the roof and they're going to become homeless. And at the same time, we have the banks (coughs) who will make some of these families homeless, making one billion euros a year in profit tax free. We have... uh, we have uh, vulture funds who are who are making a killing, uh, and we have some very very greedy landlords who are making life absolutely miserable for for families who are renting from them. So I think it was an opportunity for Pope Francis to highlight the social injustice in Ireland, but obviously he wasn't briefed and he failed to do it. I do I do apologise. It, it was it was. The, the Pope got the yellow card as opposed to Leo Varadkar, so I apologise for that. <laughs> Speaking of homelessness, I mean, the, there are some shocking stories in the papers again uh, today and all this week. I mean, we're now looking at 10,000 homeless uh, officially registered. Yeah, I mean, as as one of his, Owen Murphy's uh, spokesperson said, I mean, 10,000, 9,000, it doesn't make any difference in the sense uh, it's a psychological... Uh, but, but what a thing to say. But it's well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just the problem. The problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, you know, we have a policy, Rebuilding Ireland. We have a strategy for addressing homelessness. But if that strategy, <clears throat> which was introduced two years ago, if every single month for the last 24 months, the homeless figures keep going up and up and up, you have to conclude the strategy isn't working. That's the only test by which you can judge whether the strategy is working or not are the numbers starting to come down. And while at the beginning when Rebuilding Ireland came in two years ago, I was quite happy to give the minister time for the uh, strategy to, uh, to, to plug in and to take effect. But two years later, you can't keep saying you've got to give the strategy time strategy has failed. It cannot succeed. It's got some inherent defects in it. Uh, particularly, uh, the, the big defect is that it, uh, it envisages three out of every four homeless people 
being rehoused in the private rented sector. That's a failed strategy. It cannot succeed. First of all, most of those who are becoming homeless are being evicted from the private rented sector. And the last place in the world they want to go is back into, into the, the private, private rented sector. sector. And secondly, there's 36,000 households in the private rented sector using the HAP payment. What's that doing to rents? <laughs> That's part of the reason why the rents are gone through the roof, because they should be in social housing. And if they were in social housing, there would be an adequate supply of rented accommodation and the rents would be coming down for those who can, uh, to a level which people can, can afford. Owen Murphy has claimed uh, that the, the government of Fine Gael, they will stick to their plan and that their plan is still working. I mean, is it not reprehensible for a government representative to say that 9,000 or 10,000, 10,000 won't tell us any more about homelessness than 9,000? Well, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't get hung up on, on that particularly. I think we need a strategy where we see the homeless number of homeless people coming down. Remember, five, six years ago, we never heard of a homeless family. There were seven or eight families a month becoming homeless, and they were very easily rehoused. Today we have maybe 10, 15 families every day becoming homeless. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an absolute uh, disgrace. Uh, 10,000 homeless, it's, it's a sort of a watermark, all right. It will, it will uh, galvanize uh, the opposition. <clears throat> but really, it's, it's the last two years of rising homeless figures that I think we should be focusing on. Where, where will it so stop? They, the emperor has no clothes. That's what comes to mind. And, and, and so where, when will the government decide? <laughs> where, where, to the, huh? where will that figure stop? Because, I mean, 10,000 people, if you put 10,000 people into Partalton and Navan, it will be full. Yeah. You know, seven or eight years ago, I made a statement saying we have a tsunami of homelessness coming down the road. And the figure I mentioned was 5,000. And I was ridiculed by government. I was told I was fear-mongering. I was told uh, this is absolutely absurd. There's no evidence for, uh, to, to support this at all. Here we have 10,000 people homeless. And it's going to get much, much worse. 43,000 households in mortgage arrears of more than two years. Those mortgages cannot be resolved. Most of those are either going to be sold to vulture funds and subsequently the, the family's thrown out and the houses sold, or they're going to be repossessed by the banks. 43,000, if even a fraction of those become homeless after their house has been repossessed, this country will not be able to cope. Father Peter McFerry, thank you as always for your time and for your honesty. We will be back after this ad break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you are welcome back to The Michael Reed Show, 086-1800-658, if you'd like to make a comment in relation to the interview there with Father Peter McVerry and a very depressing interview that was uh, not through any fault of Father Peter McVerry but through the statistics and the facts and the figures that he revealed to us this morning. Now on Monday as seven presidential candidates which turned out to be eight in the end were presenting their credentials to Meath County Council ahead of nominations seeking uh, for the presidential election. Councillors from Fine Gael that day got an email to say uh, Dear Councillor I would like to advise you of the decision of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party and Executive Council regarding Fine Gael's participation in the forthcoming presidential election. Both 
bodies, one of which counters are represented on have decided that the party will support the candidacy of President Michael D. Higgins. The President uh, the party is committed to supporting his re-election unconditionally. We heard on this programme yesterday from Jerry O'Connor, who has the Fine Gael whip on Meath County Council, 13 Fine Gael councillors on Meath County Council. At his surprise that councillors had been told previously they were free to support any candidate of their choosing until Monday when Fine Gael issued this email saying you must back Michael D. Higgins. Joining me in studio is Councillor Sharon Tolan, a Fine Gael councillor on Meath County Council. And we're joined on the line by Councillor Alan Tobin, who's a Fine Gael councillor also on Meath County Council, and Councillor Oliver Tully, Fine Gael councillor for Louth. Good morning to all of you. Sharon, can I begin with you? You were not expecting this email. I wasn't, but to be perfectly honest, I, you know, it must have been a, a slow news day, um, you know, that the media got so excited about this email. I'm not terribly worried about this email. It is not a directive. Um, it's a suggestion or a request. Um, was that not what was made in the summer, but this was a directive saying you must vote for Michael D. Higgins? No, well, you know, the, the political landscape in relation to the presidential election seems to be changing daily, as, as the announcement this morning even, even shows. Um, certainly from my own perspective, and I can only speak from my own perspective, when Sinn Féin announced on the 14th of July that they would be costing the country over 15 million in having an election um, and putting and forward a candidate. Right, absolutely, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Well, you can't. You still need the nomination of four okay, local authorities or 20 Oireachtas members. That's, what, that's democracy. Absolutely. And I fully support democracy. Um, but as I said, it totally changed the landscape. Had all Oireachtas members thought that it was uh, fit to... Um, to run Michael D. Higgins again or to support Michael D. Higgins again, I would have respected as a democratic right to respect Oireachtas members uniting for the sake of the country behind the, the incumbent presidential. you personally are not supporting Michael D. Higgins? Now? Yes. No. Uh, who do you support? Well, currently, and I've said this to, to, no. to, to one of the, the, the candidates and, and I'm on the record to say, currently, with the current lineup, I support Gavin Duffy. Okay, and he presented to me County Council. He did indeed, and he gave a very, very good presentation. And some councillors, I believe, took selfies with him. Would that be right? Uh, well, I don't. I had a photograph <laughs> taken with him. It wasn't a selfie, but it was a photograph so, so in a group. As, and this is, of course, was before Sean Gallagher announced this morning that he is officially going to run for for. And the and office. who and whoever else may announce may, be, be, beforehand. I think, I think, by my uh, count, we're up to twelve. I think the nominations close at, at noon on September twenty sixth, so correct. things could change again. Councillor Alan Tobin, good morning to you. Good morning, Carl, and good morning to your listeners. How are you getting on? Do you agree with Sharon that this is not a directive, but a suggestion? Yes, I do. I, I'd agree uh, fully with, with Sharon. I, I mean, I gave my support to... to uh, well, I'm not hiding the fact that I gave my support to Kevin Duffy, but I, 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 uh, I gave my support to Gavin uh, back as early as August. The third, I was in Slovenia on my, my uh, summer holidays, and there was a couple of emails that I toed and froed between myself and, and Gavin. And at, at that stage... I was under the impression, um, as everyone else was, that we could, we we were not to nominate or second, but that we could um, support. So, therefore, I gave my support to the candidates who I thought w- w- would would best. But what, what does that support? Interest. What does that support mean, Alan? If you can't nominate or second, what does that support? You cannot then stand up in Me County Council and say, "I propose or second Gavin Duffy exactly. to run." That, 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 that's my understanding of it. But, but can you vote uh, for him in that in that vote? And I don't see why I can't. The, the, the directive or, the, or the, the, the information that we got, got from uh, Fine Gael HQ at the time, the, the impression that I got from it was that we can't nominate our second, which is fine, but you can support. Now, to me, you can support means that you can, when it comes to a vote, vote 
Gavin Duffy when his name comes. Okay, can, can I can quote you from the email which you received? On, on were you surprised to get this email on Monday? We get communications all of the time, so I'm not surprised with any communications that we get. But the timing of it, and in, 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 and in the week that the government was about to call the election, uh, that Michael D Higgins clearly is, is under some pressure, and he is your preferred candidate. He's the party's preferred candidate, and and he's the TD's uh, preferred candidate, and, and the executive councils, the the county councillors weren't asked their opinions, and we wouldn't be the only county councillors in one particular county that wouldn't be happy with the fact. Uh, that our opinions weren't asked for mm. um, with this. I mean, we're the largest party in the state and we should have had our own candidate going into the presidential election, I feel. And the absence of that and Michael D being... Why, why do you think uh, you don't have a candidate? Money well, saving? It, it, Michael D, it, well, why don't we have one? Mm. Um, our eyes are probably on the, the, the general election and most certainly uh, in nine months' time we have our, our local election. Um, mm. I can see it, it from that point of view. Um, the war chest is only so big and uh, a presidential election it would be quite costly. Can I just quote you from the very last line of this email? We are requesting that councillors in considering the matter of presidential nominations take into account the party's position and as a consequence neither propose or support other candidates. You're happy that that is not an order? It's not an order and, and I don't support um, the, I, I support the democratic process and I think that we should have an election and I think that we should be free if we, in the absence of a Fine Gael, uh, presidential election nomination, we should be a, able to have a free vote, I think, and support who we, we see fit. Um, and I don't see Michael D as being the person who I want to support. Uh, at this moment in time, you're quite happy that you have a free vote. At this moment in time, I have given my commitment and I gave my commitment on August the 3rd to support Gavin Duffy. And I, can't, I, I, I don't go back on my work. And I'm not giving Sinn Féin and Labour a free uh, 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 election runoff there between between a Labour candidate and a Sinn Féin candidate. I don't think that that's right. Even though your own party is backing the Labour candidate? Even though my own party are, are, are backing the Labour candidate, yes. Councillor Oliver Tully joins us on the line, uh, Fine Gael Councillor and Louth County Councillor. Good morning to you, Councillor. Good morning, Councillor. Can I ask you your reaction to the email? One, as I've asked uh, both our other guests this morning, were you surprised by it? I was surprised that it had changed from the when we had received originally, yes. So you do think there's a change. Well, what do you see as the change? Well, the sea change is that the councillors are allowed to have a free vote, but are not allowed to nominate or propose any candidate. So up to this, you felt you could, for example, propose your preferred candidate? No. I, 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 the, the party was uh, supporting Michael D. Higgins. And that's the line that I would have been taken, and I think most of the party would have been taken as well. So you're happy that Michael D. Higgins is, is your preferred candidate in this instance? I am. I am as, as, as you personally, person, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Personally, I am. Uh, the, the other candidates, as I see, uh, there's no track record for being public servants. Or none of them are councillors, TDs, senators, whereas Michael D. would have that experience. And I mean, we're, we're talking about if the, the highest position in the country and it is a political position so it is regardless of what people say and you have to know what you're at and what you're about and, and none of these well they might tell us that they know what they're about and what they're at um, but it's, it's, it'll be totally new for them it's a total new sea change for them if, if they're elected Do you think Oliver we need an election? Uh, I, I do yes I, I wouldn't have any problem with there being an election 
Sharon, your your reaction. I mean, clearly, Alan is going to support Gavin Duffy as mm-hmm. you are. Um, Oliver is supporting Michael D. Higgins, and mm-hmm. is quite happy that the party has issued this. Yeah, uh, and that's his 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 line on that. Absolutely, I suppose from my own perspective, elections are the very fabric of democracy. And once Sinn Féin announced that they were going to propose a candidate, uh, there was going to be an election. Now, I will not hand over the presidency of this country to a Sinn Féin candidate on a plate. And it was my responsibility, and I feel it's our responsibilities as county councillors in this country to ensure that the public have a choice in the matter and that they have a say. I also feel it's important that, I mean, the eight candidates that came to us, um, I had utmost respect very, very brave thing to come and and put, you know, put their, their perspective to us. Um, I know there was lots of jokes made about Marilyn Monroe and all the rest and that that's fine. The Lewis to Connemara and it still is a brave thing to do to put your name forward. But it is a very, very serious position. It is the highest position in the country and it is important that we ensure the public have a good lineup of candidates that they can select and scrutinise and decide for themselves. We have so to do, remember... Do, do, Cahill, you, do you agree that you cannot propose or second your chosen candidate? Well, I had no intention of proposing or seconding a candidate. I had no but intention. would you like to? What I'd like to... Um, well, it's, it's irrelevant, really. It's, 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 it's not. It is irrelevant. You, would you like to, have, no, would you like to have proposed Gavin Duffy? You're telling me that you don't support Michael D. Higgins, who is, is your candidate, your no, party's no, no, chosen no, candidate. No, 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 I didn't say that. So you do if, support him. If, if the Oireachtas members in unity had decided that in the interests of the country there would not be an election, that they would all support Michael D. Higgins, I would have, gone, I would have respected that decision as is their democratic right as Oireachtas members. Mm-hmm. The other thing to be mindful of is anybody under the age of 25 in this country has not had an opportunity to vote for a president here yet. Now we had a massive they amount... They also can't run for office by the No, way. I know, but I mean they can still choose their president. We had a massive amount of young people over the last number of years engage in politics and it has been a fantastic, uh, fantastic thing to see and a fantastic when you're knocking on doors, supporting or not supporting yeah. a referendum to Just, listen to young people becoming okay. engaged. But to, for anybody to, under 25 not to have had the opportunity to vote, enough. I think it's important. I have to get back to uh, Councillor Alan mm. Tobin. Would you have preferred to be able to nominate or second Gavin Duffy? Uh, I would, and I, I, but I, I, w- I would have liked to have seen him maybe as a, as a Fine Gael candidate. Um, I, I think that we should have had the discussion as to whether we were going to put a candidate uh, forward. I, I said this to you already. We, we are the, the largest party in the state, and it is the you know the the, the, the president is, is is held in very very high esteem. And I think as founders of the state, we should have had a, a presidential candidate. Um, Councillor, Councillor Oliver Tully in from Loud, do you, do you agree you should have run a presidential candidate? Uh, I, I would agree we should have run one, yes. Hmm. Um, any, it would have given us a, a different perspective on the whole issue, so it would. Any thought on who that might have been? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I've already made clear to Gavin if there was a Fine Gael candidate uh, such as Mairead McGuinness, he definitely he wouldn't out. have been getting it. He, he was, was out. out. <laughs> okay. And Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, good luck to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap it up there. Our thanks to Councillor Sharon Toll and Fine Gael Councillor for Meath County Council and also to Councillor Alan Tobin, um, Fine Gael Councillor as well in Meath and to Councillor Oliver Tully from Loud Fine Gael. All three Fine Gael and all three with very differing uh, views in some aspects but some very similar views as well on the forthcoming presidential election. The 26th of October, the country goes to the vote. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, people are facing delays in receiving illness benefit due to a row between GPs and the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection over new forms. This story covered in many of the newspapers this morning. The Irish Mail, for example, saying that as many as 74,000 sick workers could face long delays in their badly needed illness benefit payments as the row between GPs and the Department of Social Welfare and Protection threatens to escalate. Join us to discuss this story and her first-hand experience is Dr Mary Scully, who's a GP with the Abbey Medical Centre in Navin. Good morning to you, Dr Scully. Morning, Carol. Can you tell us, first of all, as a doctor, uh, how this change came about as, in terms of how it affected you guys and when you were, you were informed of it? OK. Well, the first we knew about it was on Tuesday, the uh, 17th of July, when we received posters in from the Department of Social Protection to our practice informing us that there was a complete change in the new forms to be done from the following Monday, the 23rd of July. That was the first we heard about it. And these forms refer to what exactly, Dr Scully? These are new forms for certification of illness. We've been using the old forms for about 30 years. Uh, We hadn't heard of any changes being done. And yet uh, these posters arrived. And then the new forms actually only arrived into our practices on Friday. The Friday before the Monday when this change was supposed to be implemented. And this was, as far as we knew, without any discussion with us, without any agreement from us about it, they just appeared. Interestingly, they came with a letter saying that if we had concerns to contact particular personnel in the Department of Social Protection, an email address was given. But when you emailed them, you found out they were actually on holidays. In July, which tends to which tends to happen, of course. Now, people presenting with these forms, what are their stories? What what sort of these are people who are taking time off work because of illness or because of of uh, occupational injury? Yes, these are people who are certified as unfit to work due to particular conditions, illnesses, accidents, operations, etc. And would we be talking medium term to long term illnesses or injuries, or are we talking even short term? It could be short-term, it could be long-term. Usually, if they're long-term, they usually move over to uh, disability allowance after a certain length of time when it becomes apparent they're not maybe going to be fit to go back to work. So the longer-term ones probably convert over to that. Mm-hmm. But it's, so it's mostly usually for short-term illnesses or anything up to maybe so, a year or two. Yeah, so if, so if, if I get the flu in, in December or whatever and I, I present to you and this form has to be filled in. Yes. And you were given no training in this, wasn't somebody came down with the form and said this is how it's now going to work? No, and the thing about it is, the reason why we are very annoyed and upset about this is that these forms are completely different to the old forms. The old forms just had to to write down, this patient is off work because of this condition, and you did them weekly and rolled them over until such time as they were fit to go back to work. The new forms, on the other hand, expect us to be able to indicate how long they're going to be off work and give a time frame for that. And also, we have to look at their work and decide whether they're sedentary or mediumly heavy or very heavy workload in terms of physical work, and which may affect their ability to return to work. So it's like an occupational health assessment as opposed to the forms that we were previously using. It is completely different. No matter what the DSB says, they are completely different, a complete change in work practice for which we were not consulted and there has been no agreement as to these new forms whatsoever. Now, a spokesperson for the department has said that the forms do not create any additional work for GPs. I'm sure that comes well, as a, as a surprise to you. Well, we would disagree completely with that assessment. Um, 
your own your own National Association of General Practitioners even, and this represents over 2,000 GPs, in a statement, and I'll read it to you, they said, it is simply impossible to implement the new forms until all concerns have been satisfied and terms and conditions have been agreed. It is with a sense of grave concern and disappointment that we learn to the Department of Social Protection is suggesting that GPs are to blame for a calamity of its own making. The Department is stating the delays in payments are due to GPs refusing to use the new forms. This is a tactic to bully GPs into changing work practice without mediation or negotiation. Fairly strong language, the use of the word bullying. Well, GPs are very, very upset about this, very frustrated that these new practices uh, with increased workload are just landed on us. And we feel we are the default people that every increase in workload is just being dumped on us. We have had the biggest, one of the biggest increase, you know, Fempi, um, you know, cuts to our practice incomes. We have been promised a new BGP contract. None of this is happening. And then we get this kind of thing from the government. And we are just, we're just saying we're not taking it anymore. Finally, Dr. Scully, what can happen next or what is going to happen next? Well, um, our, our, my own association at NAGP were promised mediation with the department um, in, in a written agreement, which we, they then defaulted on. That's also in your press release there. Um, the IMO say they have been discussing this for some time, although they didn't see to let their members know about this until after the event. And in any case, there was no actual agreement that these forms were due to be produced. So we have been trying to set up mediation with them. I don't know what is happening currently since the department reneged on their promise to, uh, to, to mediate with the NAGP. But possibly the next step may be that GPs may actually resign their contracts with the department uh, for taking these forms, and then they were going to have to find alternatives. And withdraw those services. Yes. And uh, Dr. Mary Scully, GP with the Abbey Medical Centre in Navan, thank you for your time this morning. My thanks to Marie, to Maggie and to Chris. Sinead is up next with the mid-morning show, including an interview with Bosco. We're back tomorrow. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie